my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm talking with retired Corporal Mike Hopkins. Uh, his friends and people they work with call him Hoppy. He spent 25 years uh, with the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Prior to that, uh, six and a half years with Metro-Dade, which is uh, Miami-Dade now. Um, most of your career you, you spent with explosive, uh, explosives ordinance disposal, clandestine lab. Yeah, we called it the clandestine lab investigation team. Any uh, illicit lab that was established for pretty much manufacturing drugs, uh, we would get called out to investigate it criminally and uh, disassemble it. And then uh, you also um, work in the undercover, undercover narcotics uh, team. Yeah, I did that for more than 20 years. Well, before we get into your, your law enforcement career, I'd, uh, I'd like to begin with really where you grew up, what, you know, what your family was like, um, you know, did you play any sports in high school, you know, that, that kind of yeah. thing. No problem. Um, I grew up down in quote unquote Miami, um, but more appropriately, more appropriately, the Perrine area, uh, which is now Palmetto Bay, down in South Dade County. Um, I was actually born in New York, but moved, I can't get that removed from a birth certificate, but um, actually moved down to Miami when I was like under two years old. So that was home. And uh, it was more rural back then and a little slower pace, smaller town. Um, I went to Holy Rosary, um, which was a Catholic grade school. K through eight, and after that, I went to Columbus High School. Um, sports, I played football, lacrosse. Never really played much, um, much baseball. Football, lacrosse, and wrestling were my thing. I loved playing football. Played offensive line for years. My time in high school was when Miami Vice was on. And I'd always thought of being a cop growing up, and that just made it even cooler to me. Um, and it was always a desire of mine. And uh, during high school, I wanted to be a cop. One of my coaches was a Metro Dade cop. And we kept in, we kept in uh, close touch through school. And just after I graduated, he happened into where I was working part time and going to Miami-Dade Community College. And I hit him up about uh, what it would take to apply and get into law enforcement. He told me how to do it. And 
I was in the academy at 19 years old. Now, did you have any family that was in law enforcement? No. Um, my brother, I, I have a younger brother. He's not in law enforcement. My dad was a Pan Am pilot that was laid off for years when they merged with National. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, uh, just you know, typical old family. No one else in the family was law enforcement. But um, it was truly, it was more like a calling. I just, I, I, I knew I wanted to do it. And uh, I chased it and was fortunate enough to get a hold of it. Started at 19 and uh, just wrapped it up at 51. You know, I've, I've got family and friends in South Florida and, um, you know, I know growing up in, in South Florida, I used to go down there, spend summers and uh, it's always been like, you know, you're always out on the water fishing, doing something. And you and I talked a little bit about it, but I mean, you, uh, you pretty much grew up on the water, right? Oh yeah, fishing, uh, the water outdoors, but specifically fishing, boating, that's my life. It's my passion. It's what I love doing. I'm looking at getting a new boat when I retire and hope to have a lot of fun with it. Uh, I worked as a, uh, a mate on a boat in Ala Mirada. Um, I was a captain for years before I got sick um, three years ago. I, I was a captain and ran my own charters. Um, I just, I love being on the water. Your time with Metro Dade was, was six and a half years. Were you mainly a patrol or did you get into uh, some of the undercover stuff there as well? I did some quasi undercover stuff, you know, some street level buying, prostitution related stuff, surveillances, robbery intervention, um, but it wasn't true. It wasn't the um, more profound undercover work that I got into a little later up in Orange County. Um, there was just kind of low key, down in Metro Data was more low key. And when I moved up here and got into it, it was like the next step. And as far as the type of cases you worked and things you did. So what led you to, to move from Miami to, to Orange County? Um, the only reason I'm here, because I would still be down there, is uh, August 24th, 1992, Hurricane Andrew hit. Um, I still remember the day before. I mean, we didn't have weather forecasts like we do now. And a day or two before it, all we knew was there was a little storm coming. But it wasn't even a threat to South Dade County at first or Dade County period. So I actually uh, left town with my my wife and we came up to see my brother who was at UCF. Spent the day with him, got back to the hotel and I had a message on the phone. It was long before everyone had a cell phone and everything. Um, there's a message on the phone to call the station. Of course, I didn't know my sergeant was an alumni of UCF, and he picked, like, the only decent hotel in the area at the time. So he found me, and it was basically telling me to head back to work. The hurricane's coming. Turn on the news, and that's all it was, was brace for the hurricane, yada, yada, yada. 
So uh, we got up early the next day. Uh, we were staying off of uh, Alafaya Road. And we went to a couple stores right around the area and bought some bottled water, you know, typical hurricane stuff, bottled water, cans of tuna, and jumped on the road headed south. I still remember how odd it was that uh, as I'm headed south, I'm like the only car on the turnpike. Northbound, it's bumper to bumper, locked up, and I'm like one of three cars headed southbound. It was a trip. It, it just hard to explain. Usually there's you know, just a mass of cars headed south to go to South Florida and Keys, and we're like the only car on the road forever. The hurricane um, is part of the reason that you ended up in Orange County? Yeah, yeah, it's it's really the sole reason. Um, I I had been married for about a year, and uh, my wife worked at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, so she had to go to work. So I helped her pack up, and she went to work, and I ran to my parents' house, the house I grew up in. Um, my mom was there, and her mom, my grandmother. She was there. She was a stroke patient, was paralyzed on one side of her body. Um, I got them out to a friend's house and went and got my other grandmother from her apartment and took them out to a friend's house further out west. Um, hung out there for a little bit and said, well, I'll see you tomorrow. We'll see what happens. I went to the station, um, attended briefing. And, you know, you watch like a 10 or 15 minute video on when the winds are bad, hide, when the winds are coming out of this way, hide on this side of the building. When the winds are coming out of the other way, you know, hide on the other side of the building. Hey, be safe out there. Go get them. And then they started just reading off um, assignments. And very early in reading off the assignment, because everyone at the station was you know, whether you were a detective or what your role was, you're working. It was a complete recall of staff. Very early in the list, they called out me and my partner's name. And they told us to uh, go to the Arsenal gun shop, which was in Naranja. Which uh, was basically just outside the doors of Homestead Air Force Base. It told us when the winds get bad, find a place to hide. And we're like, all right, that's what we'll do. So we go down there and we're driving around and, you know, looking for people preluding and stuff like that. It started raining and blowing. And we got blown off the road off of US-1 like twice and blown into the median. We're like, man, we got to get off of this and find some place because the winds were steadily picking up. And we looked over and there was a car wash uh, where you self-serve car wash. And we were like, well, Poured concrete roof, poured concrete and block sides, elevated for drainage. That yeah, looks good. And we had no idea what we were in for, but that's where we wrote it out. We pulled in there and uh, hunkered down the best we could. And the winds just started coming and got stronger. It, it was absolutely unbelievable, the stuff we were seeing. We watched... Uh, a uh, camper on top of a truck roll across all the lanes of US-1, going from the west side to the east side, 
parts of roofs and houses. You could hear tornadoes coming. We lost a lot of the windows in the car, almost all of them, I think. It was just absolutely unbelievable. And then it went to absolutely stillness and nothing. And me and my buddy got out of the car, walked outside, look up, you could see stars. We we're like, man, that's great. It's over with. That's got to be, that's all right. We'll get ready. And of course, he was he was older than me, had more time on. He's like, eh, let's hold out a minute. You know, let's see what's going on. Not 15 minutes later, we just got hit by a wall of absolute destruction. It was the backside of the eye wall. But I remember during the first half, we you know, we lost our radio and everything. We would get intermittent transmissions from the dispatcher because um, they were transmitting on higher output. And I remember one time they were saying, uh, you know, the, the National Hurricane Center estimates it's about an hour until the eye makes landfall. I was just like, man, there is no way we're going to live through this. If that wasn't the eye, if that was just a little hollow spot in it, there is no way we're going to make it through this. But that second half of the eye wall was just as bad as the first, except now, now the wind goes in the completely opposite direction. So everything got weakened, bending to the left, now snapped off going to the right. Street signs, trees. Oh, I forgot a point. Um, when we got out in during the eye of the storm, we get out and we're just like, holy crap, you know, muddling to ourselves. And I hear this voice and I look up and there's an old man standing there in the car wash in his tidy whities And he just like walked up on us. And me and my partner are like, man, what are you doing? He goes, oh, my house blew down. I saw y'all's lights on. I walked over here. So during the eye, we <sighs> took time to get him crammed in there, gave him one of our raincoats and we put him in the back seat. During the first half, my partner was in the back seat, but now we're both in the front seat. And those old cop cars from 88 to 90, 92 back then, all the electronics were on the floor. So there was no room at the hump, the transmission hump in the car. So we're kicking that stuff out and getting it out of the way so we get down on the floorboard of the car. Because so we got no windows, nothing to stop stuff from coming through. All the gravel from rooftops was coming through. Um, I mean, it was just absolutely unimaginable. Crazy, ridiculous stuff going on. This old guy sat in the back and we had all the gravel from the rooftops, stop signs coming through the car. And uh, literally all I could do was cry and pray because it's like the only challenge or fight that I've been in where there's nothing I can do but sit there and take it. You, you, you have no recourse against God and nature. You have no action against God and nature. The only action we had was pulling in this car wash. Well, now you just got to wait for it. And uh, it left me to do nothing but sit there and pray. And man, I prayed for hours. The transformers, were, some of them were still popping off. And uh, after hours of getting bounced around, oh, another thing is 
during the first half of the storm, the front end of the car would come up and it would bounce up and down. And then during the second half, the rear end of the car, the trunk end would come off the ground. A after hours of riding out the second half of the storm, and I mean, it literally, it seemed to last, the storm seemed to last eight, 10, 12 hours. I have no idea how long it really lasted, but I remember as the sun came up, I saw this guy in a truck going south on US-1 and it wasn't a it wasn't an FPNL truck or Duke Energy or anything. He was just in a pickup truck with bolt cutters and he was cutting every power line that was laying across the, that was uh, keeping people from passing. He was cutting it off the highway. So we saw him out there and we we're like, well, I guess it's good. So we jumped out of the car and got the old guy out of the back seat. And apologized to him for what we were about to do, but basically told him we had to go to work. Um, we'd be in the area later looking for him. We'd bring him uh, any supplies we could. We'd direct people down there. So we had to leave, leave him there, which, I mean, that truly felt bad because here we are to help people. Well, he's alive. That's about the best we can hope for in this situation now. God only knows how many people out there truly need, you know, active help at this point. And we can't tote him around all day doing it. So um, he agreed. We shook hands and drove off. Going down US-1 wasn't bad. And we turned west to make our way out towards the Redlands. It was virtually impassable. It was uh, telephone poles across streets. So you drive through yards. Some of the yards were so soaked from the hurricane that you'd just be spinning your tires trying to get through. It's hard to express how bad it was just trying to make your way. What would have taken us five minutes to do, or, you know, a 20 minute drive was literally an hour, an hour and a half. Roads, forget it. We're driving through yards, over curbs, you know, doing whatever you needed to do to get there. And in the course of doing this, we run across a lot of people who were asking for help and for direction. We got nothing to give them. Our, like I said, our radio's out. We don't know any area that isn't affected. Affected. It literally looked like an atomic blast in South Dade County. Everything was destroyed. Everything. So there was nothing you could do for anyone except drive around and, oh, you're alive. You're good. You're good. You're good. There was some um, aid we read, rendered some people, you know, with the, uh, big scrapes, gashes, and cuts, little things that we could manage. But all we could do is just tell people, you know, we're getting resources and we'll get back around. And when we got back to US-1, I remember um, we were sitting there trying to edge onto the highway and we saw a big personnel carrier going north on the highway. And it was um, a Marine Corps unit. And they were in like a big eight-wheeled personnel carrier. And we got behind them and let them push stuff out of the way for us. And off we went. And uh, we went up that far so I could get into my own car. Because now we were breaking back down to the solo patrol. To put twice as many of us on the street instead of two people in one car. Now we're going to make it one person per car. My car was at the Falls Shopping Center. I actually didn't have a marked car. I was working unmarked at the time, so I drove my own car. 
was a little Bronco to it. I had four wheel drive, which was great because I was able to go where I needed to. And um, I kept trying to make it to see my grandparents, my mom, make sure they were all right. Well, uh, that took three days to accomplish. And it was literally 10 miles away. But you just could not go anywhere. There's nowhere to go. All you hear across the radio is the emergency tone and the, um, the Goodyear blimps flying around with information on it lit up. And that's really the only form of communication you had. You know, we I'd go by the station, find out what's going on and go do what they needed and just kept doing that every day. And eventually as assets came in to assist us, you know, the power companies, uh, cops from other agencies, firefighters from around them, firefighters from everywhere. I mean, we had, uh, we had cops from everywhere. It was a huge relief effort. And it days, as they come to town, they don't know the area. There's not a street sign left. So you went with your local knowledge of a place and your local knowledge wasn't good because those landmarks that you're used to having, you know, that certain tree that you make a right at, well, that tree's gone now. So it was all, it's very disorienting. Um, but as people started uh, coming in to help us, they teamed us up with, uh, like my first partner was uh, a Florida Wildlife Commission um, officer from North Florida. He rode with me for a couple weeks. I had some law enforcement from out of state, South Carolina, that rode with me. And as time, as things started to transition and get better, and we we were able to, I don't want to say get back to normal, but start making that transition to normal. They started changing our shifts to more of an Alpha Bravo, 12 on, 12 off. The looting occurred like before the storm, after storm, during the storm. We got that shut down pretty quick. And then it was pretty much rescue efforts. It was just absolute craziness. How did your family fare? Um, oh yeah, I forgot what I started talking about. It. Um, our house was completely destroyed, gone. Uh, you know, the structure was there, but there was no roof. I mean, it was a complete loss. Um, my grandparents, my two grandmothers were safe and my mom was safe. My dad was a pilot with uh, Pan Am at the time. So he rode the storm out in Spain, you know, lucky him. But um, all our friends and family made it through physically. But what was going to happen afterwards? How many homes were destroyed? You know, this place I was raised in from the time I was a year old up till I forget how old I was when Hurricane Andrew hit. But I, I knew like day one, this was going to change what I knew and my lifestyle for good. And um, my parents, uh, I had an uncle who worked for Southern Bell, but he worked on the Space Center up, in, uh, up here in Central Florida. He invited my parents up to stay for a bit and look around. And my parents decided to move to Merritt Island. So I was coming up visiting them and 
I got some encouragement from my dad trying to get me out of there, out of Dade. And I listened to him and uh, I just decided that South Florida had changed so much. Uh, might as well get a fresh start somewhere. So I applied to Orange County and um, I was fortunate enough to get hired. That was in 96. So when you got hired on with, with Orange County, did, I don't know how it works uh, with law enforcement because you'd already had quite a bit of experience. Did you start down at the bottom? Oh yeah, um, my, my retirement time, my time towards retirement stayed because even though Metro Dade Police Department is called a police department, it is actually the Sheriff's Office State County. So it fall, fell under the uh, Florida retirement system. But yeah, I moved up here um, not knowing a soul. I <clears throat> uh, didn't know anyone. Actually, I, I wound up discovering that um, one of my field training officers from the Cutler Ridge area had moved up here prior to Andrew or right after, I forget, but she got here before me. And so I got to see her a couple times. But other than that, it was like a complete fresh start. I had to apply took me about a year to get hired and it was just starting all over again. I, I'd established a name for myself down South and had my friends, my clique, my, you know, the people I ran with and knew and worked with and literally pulling up the roots and moving them. You know, it's a complete transplant thing. New employee ID number, new hire date, everything brand new, which yeah. although scary is not a bad thing. Your, your wife, is she a nurse? She's a, a radiologist, technologist. I believe that's the right term for it. She takes x-rays, CAT scans, stuff like that. Was it easy for her to make the move? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she actually found work real easily. Um, in fact, she started off working over at ORMC while we lived in Brevard. Uh, she worked at ORMC with trip over there every day and trip home she enjoyed working over there just when we had kids that kind of distance wasn't a good thing you know living in Brevard and having kids there staying with my my parents are going to school and both of us at some time or another being in Orlando working there's just too much of a gap there so we had to close that and um she decided to change and she works over in Brevard how many children do you have? I got two boys. And I'm trying to remember their age. I'm sorry, I have an anoxic brain injury. Um, 25 and, or, yeah, 24 and 22-ish. I know they're both old enough to drink. <laughs> um, but uh, I have one who uh, wants to be a Florida wildlife officer and one who's finishing up at University of Southern Mississippi. You get on with, with Orange County Sheriff's Office. Yes, sir. And I guess you transition from, from patrol to narcotics, and then that kind of led into the Klan lab and the EOD stuff? Yeah, what, what actually happened was... Um, some of the experience I had in Dade County was working prostitution or in Dade County was working prostitution cases. 
and right around you have to do two years in patrol with with uh, orange county right around my two-year mark they had an opening in vice well vice is a branch of narcotics it's in the undercover world and i was like i gotta try and get there and uh the sergeant at the time was actually a guy from metro day i didn't know him uh, i didn't even know he's metro day till i started working for him but i i interviewed for it and I was fortunate enough to get the job. I got started in the vice world and um, I actually didn't realize it, uh, but the sergeant was from Metro Dade. I didn't know him down there. And he worked the same station. I worked down there, lived in the same area. I never knew him. It was just a small world coincidence. Um, I was fortunate enough to get into vice and during vice, you work in the same building. And with the narcotics people. So I got to know some of them, started talking to them, started assisting them. And then I went into narcotics work. Because you can only drive up and down South Trail and do that job so for so long. I did it for quite a while, but it got to a point where it's just mind-numbing. So I, I moved over to narcotics and I was I was uh, doing a lot of work there. And had a lot of fun there, worked with a lot of good people. And I just remember seeing a posting for the bomb squad, EOD. And I was like, man, that is the one thing I've always wanted to do because, in my opinion, it was the ultimate challenge. It challenges you physically and mentally. Um, and I just, I, I've always wanted, I was always interested into, in it. And I decided, man, that's what I want to do. Um, so I prepared for that the most I could because very rarely do people know anything about it before they get into it. Unless you're someone with prior military and stuff like that. So um, I was fortunate enough to get selected uh, to become a member of the Hazardous Devices team. And I, during training for that, I forget what year it started in, we started seeing a rise in meth labs occurring in Orange County. I think it was after one of those storms, you know, like a hurricane that came by and hit us pretty good, but not, you know, not a monumental event. So we started uh, dealing with meth labs in the drug unit and it was taking forever to do these because you would have to get a federal team that was trained properly to come in and do them. So I started looking at how do we get that training? How do we, how do we become able to handle our own problem instead of having to wait for people to drive down from Jacksonville or something to handle it? How do we free up our resources and use the resources we have? I got cooperation through the sheriff's office chief Otterbacker and was told to run with the ball so I set up um, I set up our clandestine lab response team and basically it started with me and uh, one guy and it bloomed into you know like me and three other guys then and we basically had about a dozen people at one time um, and I mean we would respond to meth labs 
in doing meth labs, we also wound up doing grow houses, cannabis grow houses, because of all the toxins in there, the molds and mildews, you've got organophosphates. There's a lot of craziness that people don't realize or take for granted. I mean, it's only weed, right? Uh, it's really dangerous. Plus all the improvised elect electrical wiring for their, um, for their grow systems. We also got into handling uh, chemical suicides. We had a couple of those. The need was really recognized to have law enforcement capable to do hazmat type work, collect evidence and testify in court. I developed a great relationship with um, the fire department and you and a couple other guys. And we basically didn't need to write a plan or anything. We just knew what we had to do and how to get there. And I don't know that we ever even put, I know on my end, we didn't initially put a, a written directive together on it, but eventually we had to, where we would not make a move on any labs unless the squad was there. Well, I actually brought that over to the bomb squad as well, because rather than just, because originally on the bomb squad, we would just, uh, hey, we need FB, FD to stand by. Okay. Well, yeah, usually it's for, you know, in the event we have an explosion, we need fire suppression, stuff like that. But if we're dealing with putting a guy in a 110-pound suit, you've got other issues that exist. You know, you've got a guy in a bomb suit, you have a risk of an explosion, trip and fall hazard, heat stroke, heat-related stress. There's a lot of things, and you're dealing with chemicals when you have some of these improvised devices. So why not reach out to a squad and have them join us? And that's when we started working that relationship up. And that actually became a fantastic relationship and worked very well, regardless of what scene we went to. It always worked well. And what, um, just for the listeners, what you're referring to when you uh, say the squad is Orange County Fire Rescue's uh, yes. special operations that is, uh, you know, all the technical rescue training and hazmat. Yes. So, so we, we operated kind of like your rapid intervention team should somebody um, fall out or if there was a detonation. And then if uh, with a plan lab thing, we operated as your uh, decon team. Yep. You guys covered our decon. Once we get them stabilized, I know several times in the early days, we're in proper protection. I bring a guy or two in to show them. So, because who say that they're not going to go to a rescue call for someone sick and it'd be a lab? What better way to see what a lab looks like than to see a real one? So, with proper protection and they go through decon and they know what they're doing, just don't touch anything while we're in there. I felt it open their eyes to what we were doing because initially I felt that there was some, um, well, why are you guys doing this? This is a hazmat call. Yeah, true, but it's also a criminal event, which requires courtroom testimony and procedures, collection of evidence. So it's long, so it's a little bit of both. Well, with it being a little bit of both, I found that we needed both of us there, because we could tap into your expertise and you into ours, and in combining that response, I think it worked out very well, very well. I mean, we always had a great reputation um, in that community 
on the law enforcement side I know of. And it always impressed people when, you know, an agency would be like, hey, we think we have a meth lab in, in our jurisdiction. Can you handle it? Well, yeah. Let me call the squad. What do you mean? You'll see. And I'd call the squad and they'd show up and we'd do our whole thing. And I remember multiple times seeing the, the, you know, the ranking official from that agency sitting there going, holy crap, I had no idea they could do this. And we just show up and handle it, you know. And uh, it just wound up being a great relationship. In fact, uh, I heard recently that the Orange County Clandestine Lab Response Team still works with the squad. And the lab team has now become like a Class A response team for the Southeast U.S. Wow. Yeah, so they've, they've actually moved on up and out. You know, which I'm very proud of. I started it, but they've moved it up and out. Good for them. Yeah. You've uh, you've been in uh, leadership positions uh, throughout your career, and you know, managing managing type A personalities, and it, you know, you you build that trust and all that leading in just everyday operations is quite different than leading in those high stress environments when people are risking their lives. So right. I, I want to just kind of pick your brain how, how you developed your leadership style, your leadership philosophy, kind of what were some of your influences and um, Kind of how how you got to where you are now as that goes. I'd say my influences were, believe it or not, coaches I had during football and some of my early supervisors in law enforcement who are the old school guys. Um, I find myself being trapped in old school mentality, not in a negative aspect, but just in, I won't ask anyone to do anything I not do. If it's not safe enough for me to do, I'm not going to ask someone else to do it. We're going to mitigate it, make it as safe as we can. Now, granted, there's some situations in our line of work that are without, you know, there's no flowery words for it. They're just damn dangerous. And you have to take risks, but you take calculated risks. You run through the risk assessment. So I, I took all the positive qualities that I'd seen from my early supervisors frankly there wasn't many, there, I don't even recall any being negative but I took what I felt was natural to me and ran with it you know molded it more personally towards me developed my own my own course of conduct from their their teachings from what they'd emulated um, I felt that did very well for me because I was always able to surround myself with great people and, you know, you could be the best leader or um, supervisor in the world, but you're only as good as your people. You know, it's not, it's not one individual. It's not the boss of the team that gets the job done. It's not that one worker on the team that gets the job done. It's the team itself that gets it done. Yeah, there's got to be someone that does beans and bullets, you know, hands you out gear. Okay, be the best at it. There's got to be someone that sweats their butt off doing all the manual labor. Do your best at it. There's got to be someone who calls the shots. Do the best at it. 
and always take care of your people. And that goes all the way down the line. It starts at the top and goes down the line. I'm not by any means saying cover up for people or cover people's mistakes. But what I'm saying is let people know the standard that's expected. Not only expected, but mandated. They're not willing to, to comply with that. Well, there's no reason to be here and fake it. You comply to this standard. This is where we are and this is where we're going. If you're on board, get in line. If you're not on board, just walk out the door. No, no hard feelings. Move on. And I've always been that open and honest about it. Because unless people know what's expected of them, they don't know what they need to put forward. They don't know what they need to bring to the table. If you're up front and tell people, hey, this is what I expect and need, and they're willing to do it, then you can hold their feet to it because you have that original agreement. There's no, there's, you're not hiding anything. It's all out in the open. Um, now it's on them to do it. It's on you to bring them there. It's on you to coach them there, but it's on them to actually do it. I was very, very frank with a lot of the uh, people who were going to try out for the lab team back in the day and, and DOD as well, because I was a training officer on our DOD team. And the big saying used to be, hey, this is a part-time job with a full-time commitment. Because those two spots are unique in as much as when you're on call. It's truly on call. No one plans to find a meth lab. No one plans to find a suspicious package. That's all like Christmas morning stuff that just, you know, hey, here it is. Well, damn. So, you know, I've been at my kid's birthday party when they were a kid. All right, give me a half hour. I'll be on my way. Well, we don't have a half hour. Okay, I'll be on my way real soon. You know, and unfortunately, from time to time, you have to walk away from big events. And in retrospect, it did cost me greatly over the years. Um, I've never been on vacation, truly. I've never been out. Of, I went out of town once. Why? Because I couldn't stand to be away. Couldn't stand to be away from my people and my responsibility. There's a couple times where I let my people run in, in part of their growing. You run the lab call. I'm not far away and I'm by the phone. Okay. Well, that's not shirking my responsibility or disregarding my responsibility. That's letting someone take a step up in their role. That's coaching them to be in line for taking over. I mean, we never know if we're going to wake up the next day. You got to have a plan B. You know, every plan needs a plan B. So it wasn't by means of being lazy or just not wanting to be there. It was in the interest of the best interest of the team to have someone else prepared to be able to run and manage a call. And the only way to do it, you can't teach all that. A lot of the knowledge comes from a book, but the practice is an action. And therefore, it must be practiced in real time, real person, you know, hands on. So I never set my training up as, um, you know, a lot of prior experiences in EOD, there's no way to win the mission. There's just, you know, there's just some days you can't win. You know, crazy triggers and sensors and stuff that. All right, well, the only way to do this is with a robot. 
and clear the area. So because we're just going to set off a bunch of stuff trying to get to the objective. Well, you have to make goals have to be attainable. If the goal is unattainable, there's no sense in having the training. It can be challenging, but it has to be attainable. There has to be a way to do it. And you as the trainer must be able to do it yourself. Because I, I couldn't respect someone who just taught me from a book or something they had heard once. No, you got to walk in their shoes to be able to confidently bring it forward. You have to be able to show, no, look, this is how you do it. And actually put yourself in that situation, in that specific situation, and be able to do it. Otherwise, you're teaching theories, and that's completely unfair and ineffective. We talked a little bit about this, um, and I, I don't know how detailed you want to get, uh, but you know some of some of how how we learn, some of the best lessons that we learn in our careers, it comes from comes from screwing up. Yeah, it comes oh, yeah. from screwing up, and then. Uh, as you move up in the organization, you find yourself in that position where you're um, holding people accountable for for some mistakes. Um, and I, I just always, I, I like to ask people, have you ever in a supervisory role, in a leadership position, had to um, work with somebody that made a mistake, but it was one of those mistakes that you had made before yourself and maybe kind of struggled with like, shit, man, this kind of seems a little bit hypocritical. Um, and, and how did you deal with that feeling? I've dealt with that feeling, you know, on, I don't want to say numerous occasions, but there's been a couple of times during my career where, okay, yeah, I've done the same dumbass thing. I'm sorry about my mouth, but, um, yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. I'm human. I'm a dumbass. I've done some stupid stuff in my life on and off the job. I've made mistakes on and off the job. I've paid for every one of them. But the one thing I've done is I've owned every one of them. Because in order to correct yourself or correct your behavior or become better from a mistake, absolutely must own your mess up. You have to recognize it, accept it, and correct it because if you don't accept it and admit it for lack of a better term um, you can't address it you can't make it better you can't improve from it I, I believe that every situation we go through in life as bad as it may seem you can draw a positive end out of it and that positive end is how you can improve yourself or the people around you well, it's the same thing as messing up at work. That same thing as making a mistake at work. As long as you keep your mistakes small where people don't get hurt. I mean, if you make a big boo-boo, uh, yeah, um, that, that, that's a terrible move and you got to pay the prices on it. If you make a small mistake, the world's still going to go around. Does it hurt you? Yeah. Does it suck for you? Do you, you know, do you get a bad feeling and a black cloud over your head? Yeah. But you got to be stronger than that and go, okay, I dropped the ball. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to run with it and I'm going to make it better. And that's the only recourse you have. That's the only action you have to a bad situation is you have to make it better. No one's going to come along and make it better for you. 
You can't make it better unless you own it. You have to own it. Once you do, you can start, start taking steps to making it better. And a lot of situations, depending on what it is, you have to have real and true goals. Yeah, I can establish any goal I want. Okay. But with a goal has to be a suspense time, a time that that goal will be completed or achieved in. And that's where you need to be realistic. You got to give yourself a day, a week, a month, a year. Well, set realistic goals with realistic deadlines and things become achievable. They're then landmarks that you can look back on and go, did it, got it, nailed it, finished it. All your comments will be positive about it. If you set unrealistic goals, all you can look back and see is failure. And uh, that's no way to look behind. So that being said, and I appreciate you going through that with me because that's it, it's awesome, awesome advice. It, spot on leadership 101, you know, uh, and some, you know, it, it seems pretty simple, but it'll, it'll take some people their entire career to, to figure that out if, if they ever do. Some people will choose not to figure it out because that's the easier option. Yeah. You know, if you don't own it or address it, it just happened and you keep walking by it. Okay. Nothing gets better. It's just, it's there. Well, you need to address it and make it better. Makes everything around you better. I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And, you know, one of, one of the things that I've talked about uh, in different episodes is how I've dealt with PTSD, uh, steps that I've taken, uh, how... I mean, hindsight's 2020 always, and it and it's not good to you know focus on the past. But it's it's one of those things where if I could give somebody advice that is starting off in their career, is don't try and be you know Mr. Tough Guy when when we see the bad things that we're bound to see in uh, public safety, law enforcement, fire department, you're bound to see some really bad stuff and stuff that'll stick with you for the rest of your life. And those things, if you don't address them, if you don't take care of yourself physically and mentally, you can just get filled up with that, with that shit and and it ends up growing up the rest of your life, uh, the other parts of your life, you know? And um, one of the things with law enforcement and, and the fire department, that's different than um, I think combat veterans where combat veterans typically, it'll be some really, really bad major events, like some type of battle that's a singular event um, whereas in law enforcement and fire department, there is that potential, but what's more likely is that it is this accumulation of just shitty incident 
that stick with you and yeah. build over time. Um, that may, it may end up being one really shitty event that just puts you over the top. Uh, that's kind of what happened with me and um, what happened with me too. So I, I was wondering if, if you could talk about because you're, you've got one hell of a story, but it's not only that event, but the after effects that, you know, affected you physically, not just mentally, but physically. Yeah. And it's, yeah, just, it's, a, it's a lot. Um, I have no problem talking about it. Okay. I don't think I do. We'll know in a minute. <laughs> hey, if it can help someone else out, I'll, you know, anything to help someone else out, seriously. Um, so we talked a little bit about my, I've been diagnosed. Um, I've heard the term complex PTSD, which is actually an accrual of events. And then I had regular PTSD, I guess, for lack of a better term that just made my cup overflow. So I, I started with the PTSD stuff with my career back in, uh, there's numerous events I went to Hurricane Andrew, like I spoke of. I mean, to this day, if a red ticker tape comes up on the TV, I get all weirded out. It, 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 it's just, it is what it is. And I've had multiple. Um, I've never had a desk job in law enforcement. I've always been in the field. So in, in the course, I've had multiple, but the one that made my cup overflow and uh, really changed my life forever was the pulse, the pulse shooting in Orlando. Uh, my involvement with that started by my phone going off. I don't know, around, and I, I can only give estimates here, around two o'clock in the morning. And it was two of the young guys on the bomb squad or EOD. And they're yelling at me, hop, you need to come in, you need to get over here. There's some some guy shooting up the building and shooting up his club. They think it's a terrorist event. And uh, I thought they were BSing me, playing games. Uh, basically threatened their life. Because it was like a Saturday night at two in the morning. So I, I got dressed, I went out, got in the car, turned on the radio and I could just hear the absolute craziness on the radio. And I was like, uh, holy shit, you know, this is for real. And as I drove from Coco to <laughs> um, Orlando, you know, basically downtown, um, I could hear, hear this was an extremely violent, developing, currently actively, developing event, um, constantly hearing of shots fired, subject said this, subject said that, he's on the line with the comm center. And I can hear basically all the channels in Orange County are merged onto one channel. So um, I'm doing my best to get there and our paging system was down. So I'm taking care of a lot of this on, on the phone, sending people to get the truck, people to get equipment, people to call other people, make sure they're rolling. 
make sure they're where we're going to establish our footprint for this because as much stuff is being talked about on the radio so much being talked about and not talking about things we need to know about you know is there a staging area for you know the specialty units that need certain things and this and that so we get all that done and um I made it to Orlando faster than I ever have. I remember coming up Orange Avenue and the road being blown. As I get to the area, I had to come around the back side of it because of hazards that were existing, you know, with coming in from the south. And I remember coming on to Cayley Avenue. I'm sorry, I had to think about it. By the railroad crossing just east of uh, I-4. And I parked there and told team to assemble there and they showed up and we immediately got the robot or we worked on getting the robot off the truck we're immediately working on putting charges together to affect a breach if we need to of the building there's just an awful lot being poured into us all at once so i got the robot on the ground and i gave up um i'd put some work into the charges but I passed that on to a couple guys who were on the breaching element. And I worked on getting the robot up there because we need real-time intelligence on the target. So I'm, I'm driving the robot and we get word that we need to change our footprint and move closer to the building. So I'm driving a robot with, while um, riding in the truck, which was weird. I've never done that before. And I'm headed south on Orange Avenue with the robot and the truck pulls in to the street on the south side of Pulse Nightclub. And I'm bringing the robot through the yard and I can hear shots going. And um, like as soon as I hit the parking lot of Pulse, I remember seeing cell phones in the parking lot lighting up and the glass broken on the door window there. And um, I got the robot up there and shine the light around. There's a lot of people down. And um, basically held what I could, tried IDing the bad guy, tried getting a sight on the bad guy there wasn't any shooting going on there was no motion at this time it's like in an instant or you know over a couple minutes everything kind of settled down um but not for long because our, our breachers were getting into place quick they're getting ready to um they're getting ready to breach the building and go in and uh confront the gunman I remember I was able to get the front door open and I was actually able to get our robot inside. And they said he was uh, in the bathroom area. I don't know, but I was able to find it, get it down that thin hallway. Um, a couple minutes later, just or whatever time period, I mean, time, I, you lose all track of time when you're in a, event like this or similar event because there's so many things going on time just disappears as the, you know you get auditory occlusion stuff like that so yeah time kind of disappeared but it wasn't too long and um 
They said, prepare to breach, breach. The explosives went off. Um, the breach had limited success. We couldn't save it. We do the explosive breach on the rear wall. Um, and it wasn't ineffective, but it definitely did not have the desired effect. But in doing explosive breaching, you get all the intelligence you can about your target. Every wall on every building is different. You know, where's the footer? Where's a column? You, you know that from squad work. Every wall is different. So if we're using explosives, yeah, you want to hit the softest part and have the best effect. Um, so we were doing a blind breach with no intel or limited intel. We did the best we could and we were able to bang some holes in it. But then they needed to use the armored vehicles to um, open it more so we could transition inside. And what I basically did was I held the robot at the hallway where the restrooms were and kept it lit up without lighting up where the SWAT team was going to come in. That way, if he moved, I would have real time on him, or real time intelligence on him. Um, I also had our pan loaded on, on the robot. Um, so there's an opportunity to end, end it there. They did the breach and they started bre um, breaking out bigger space in the wall with the armored vehicle and eventually um, you know, you heard the gunshots ring out. We heard the target was down. And um, we had heard that there was, uh, you know, so he had fired at us or at the law enforcement. When I say us, it's us and OPD, just law enforcement in general. He had fired by us. And there's some people that were struck, but thank God they were all saved by their, by their body armor. Um, so now, now that we've gotten the threat, and the one thing I forgot to mention earlier is when I pulled on to Kaylee, you know, it's kind of one of those weird things where we're just working and we know this is real. And as I was building a charge, I heard this odd noise. And I was like, what the hell is that? And I turn around and look. And it's, you'll know the right name for it, the, the gurneys that the military uses. Um, you know, like they're on like one, one axle wheel, like tilt. But that thing's loaded with like three people. And there's people running with people up towards uh, RMC. And I was like, holy shit, this just got really real. Now, I've listened to it for 30 minutes in the car. I know it's real. Everyone's here. But that made me more than anything, recognize the, the, the gravity of the situation. So um, they went in, the SWAT team went in, neutralized the bad guy. I started using a ro robot to um, interrogate him for explosive devices, booby traps, bombs, whatever you want to call triggering stuff. And I'm I'm sure you've been there when we're working a robot. Robot's a fantastic tool, but it does have limitations, you know. And I had, I was able to remove his shirt, pick him up, turn him over. Completely confident he had no explosives on him or anything that was going to harm us. 
and uh, we're waiting for our next um, our next mission with this. I got pulled aside by the commander and was basically told it was on me to take um, two of my buddies in there and we needed to uh, search all the victims for booby, booby traps as well as the premises because um, he had threatened or made threats that he had booby trapped individuals and the premises. So um, I'm not going to name them. They know who they are. If I get there, okay, I'll name them. But uh, me and two individuals, two newer techs at the time, we met at the door. We developed our plan. We knew what we had to do. And the one thing I told them that you know, was kind of the measure of the moment was, uh, hey, look, if anyone gets hurt after this, it's on us. It's our fault. We have to be 100% sure that everyone searched. Because if one of these booby traps gets by us and crime scene investigators come in or people come to remove the victims and anyone else gets hurt, man, that's on us. And I can't sleep with that kind of unclear, you know, that has to be completely resolved for me to rest. So we um, we went in, we divided the building, building in half. And because they were newer, they're not new, but newer, they didn't have the time or experience I did. They took one half and worked together and I took the other half. And I completely and wholly searched each and every individual. Um, treated each and every individual with all the respect we could. Because as we were searching them, their phones are ringing and you realize it's just not a hazard or, or, or a victim. That's someone's son, daughter, lover, sister, brother. You know, it's, it's not like, it's unlike anything I've done in all the years of law enforcement. There's a true human contact here. Part of it, I think, is because one thing I couldn't stop thinking about was this guy wanted to kill a lot of people. Well, he picked a damn good target because it's just people on Saturday night, Sunday morning dancing. No one's there ready for a confrontation. Everyone's there to drink, have a couple drinks and dance. And you're going to walk in there and do this? So it, it took hours um, and every individual without getting into it was searched completely. I mean, wholly and completely. And after I searched my half and my two guys searched their half, we switched. They double checked the individuals I had searched. And I double checked every individual they had searched and the area and any content I mean, you're talking purses, backpacks, and then you're talking the people themselves. You know, it, it it took hours. But when we left, we were all 100% sure 
that no one else would be hurt. When, when we walk before we walked in there to do the search, and I'm sorry, my memory's all, you know, I have a anoxic brain injury, so sometimes my memory's out of order. Um, I remember before we went in there, we knew there was a lot of blood from um, the robot um, recon I'd done. So we were actually wearing, mod at best, you could call it modified PPE because the typical hazmat PPE doesn't go in line with EOD work, bomb disposal work, because of static, because of friction, movement and ability. So it doesn't, it doesn't jive with it. But we borrowed a bunch of boots and tie cam pants and trimmed everything to work the best we could. So we work in the environment. And um, when it was all said and done, um, we regrouped at the truck or by the truck and the three of us talked and we were 100% confident that there was no additional hazard that would hurt anyone. And we called the scene safe. And we turned the scene over to our boss he called in uh, Volusia County, Volusia County's EOD team, because we back them up a lot, like at the races and stuff. And um, we know them very well. So they came down and relieved our team. So we go home and get about a two hour nap and then come back. And um, I went home, but I didn't sleep. I went home exhausted, didn't sleep, woke up, came back again. I didn't know what, what we we're gonna have to do again, but I spent like next three days there, I guess. And we were basically staged in case they found something we didn't locate. Um, they didn't find anything and it was just a lot of, uh, me and my two buddies, we never spoke about it. You know, immediately afterwards we spoke about it. We did our little decompressed thing. We didn't speak about it anymore. You know, it was just something we did. And uh, a couple of days later, we broke down the scene and uh, went on. If you want me to fast forward to uh, how we got in touch, I believe it was a year after um, the Pulse incident. I was at my house and passed out. The next thing I remember is uh, waking up at Mayo Clinic. I, uh, I had complete organ failure to include the heart. I was brought in for AFib, I believe it's called. And I wound up leaving the Cape Canaveral Hospital and going to um, the Mayo Clinic, where I, I have no recollection of it. I remember waking up one day and realizing I was in a hospital and getting up and trying to walk around. But um, in the course of my treatment, I, um, I died twice. 
I went without oxygen for 10 minutes. And being goal oriented, I had the goal of going back to work. So I eventually, I think I was in the hospital for two months, a month or two. I got out of the hospital. I came home. I was put on light duty. I'm sitting at home trying to get better. Then I was like, man, I got to get my ass back to work. So it drove my, my wife nuts, but I would get out and go for walks. I would get out and ride the bike. I would do things trying to get my heart back in shape and get me back in shape. That was 100 pounds ago. Um, I was going to follow up appointments at Mayo. And the doc was scratching his head like, man, there's just something missing. Something's not right. And um, I did get back to work. I passed all the tests they wanted me to do. I made it back to work. Um, and one of the training that one of the days at work was block training, our annual training. And we had a course on PTSD. It was about an hour or two. And I still remember the slide flashes up on the PowerPoint screen. It's like signs or symptoms, effects, whatever, PTSD. And you could have gone right down the list and ticked every box. And it was basically the last year, year or two of my life, up to and including heart failure. So I went to see the doctor at Mayo the following week. I was like, hey, um, yo, again, he gave me the whole, and there's, there's just something. I wish it was right. It's not, I go, doc, let me ask you a question. He goes, yeah. I go, could PTSD have anything to do about this? And he goes, absolutely. Why? I go, well, I'm a bomb technician and I worked the pulse event very heavy. He's like, hmm. Do you? He goes, or did you? I go, yeah. He goes, how much sleep do you get? And I go, I don't. And he's like, you need to get treatment. So I um, immediately, virtually immediately, enrolled in UCF Restores uh, through my agency. I went to, I think it's a 30 day inpatient thing. I wound up uh, going out there and completing that. And uh, that's the first time I ever told any, that is actually the second time I'd ever told anyone what we did that night or what happened. And I did that like every damn day, you know? And when I checked out of there, I, I felt better. But the one thing I've, I've come to terms with is I, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know anything about this, but I don't think there's any pill or anything that can make you better, you know, an instant cure for it. I believe it is helping you make yourself well. Here's a ton of effort and work that must be done on your part, the individual's part to get better at PTSD. I don't know that I'll ever shed it. I don't know that I'll ever make it go away or disappear. But I'll get better at managing it. I'll own it, you know. But it's uh, it's not easy. And with all this pandemic stuff and the red ticker tape every day of COVID cases, it's just like another 
another hurricane or pulse event, you know? And so I, literally I relive it every day and I've kind of become a recluse, you know, just living in my own house. I'm over that. I, you know, that's old, that's boring, that's done. I got, I got to do something. Um, and I spoke to you, Dave, about um, a, a service dog because one of my, one of my, one of the things that happens to people with PTSD is they get this, they get anxiety when being in crowded places with strangers. Like me going to Walmart, it ain't happening. Not going, it's just not gonna, not gonna do. Um, going to Publix is quite a chore. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll go to get, go to Publix. I know what we need. I'll park my truck and I'll be walking in all amped up trying to remember what we need, what we need. I'll go in there and see all the people and it throws me into a loop. So I'll forget half the crap I went there for. I go to check out all confidently and I got so amped up about that with my brain injury, I come, in, come out and I can't find my damn car. So it's just, it's weird that small things like that are so disabling for a types that you know used to go into meth labs execute warrants you know diffuse bombs crazy stuff uh, now i can't find my damn car now i get worked up about going to Publix or or you know to a restaurant I mean, all that stuff's uncomfortable now you know and it's just it's it's very different um I don't know. I wouldn't have traded the experience of, well, I would trade the experience of Pulse. I wish it never happened. But um, I'm happy for the people who were with me in there. And I'm happy we could provide, you know, quality service to individuals. I'd wish it would have never happened. But if they were going to send people in there to do that, they got the right three people to do it, you know. What advice would you give to law enforcement or fire department people? Uh, uh, well, I the two people I went in there with, we we had like a blood oath. We weren't telling anyone anything. Not going to. They'll take our guns from us. They'll put us on the rubber gun squad. You know, yada yada yada. Okay. I kept it quiet and silent for a long time. I mean, it killed me, literally. And in recognizing, you know, through by going to that class and recognizing I had PTSD, I realized I had to do something about it. Or I wasn't going to be here very long. Well, I'm sorry, being selfish, uh, I've earned retirement. I want to spend some of that money, you know. So I actually, uh, start talking about the experience at Pulse. And I think that is one of the best things because in my untrained, you know, I'm not a professional, I'm not a doctor, believe it or not. Um, but what I, what I saw at UCF Restores is they make you, your, your body and mind spend so much energy, time and chemicals suppressing these thoughts that you lose sleep over it. Well, they make you recall these thoughts so often that it kind of goes in the normal thought file of your brain. 
realigns everything. That's why I could talk about it now instead of, you know, I don't talk about it. And I just think it's important for people to realize that, you know, and when I say people, I'm talking first responders, cops, firefighters, people that are going to see these traumatizing events, real life. I mean, shit that happens every day. Someplace in Florida or anywhere else in our country, someone's going to see an event or is right now seeing an event that's going to change their life and they don't even know it. It's happening. I guarantee it. Our world isn't so peaceful that it doesn't happen every minute, you know? And it, by all means, you can't keep it a secret. You can't suppress it. It is bigger than you. It's bigger than any of us. I grew up with a dad who was a Marine Corps fighter pilot. He was a Vietnam veteran who basically always told me PTSD is a bunch of crap. You keep that stuff to yourself. You know, we're strong people because we deal with that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I get it, Dad. God bless his soul. But the reality of it is you need to, you need to not admit that you have a problem. You need to acknowledge that you need help and you know how to fix it or start to fix it. Some people may need professional help, but don't be afraid to talk about your experiences. Reality of it is people out there want to hear about this stuff. Everyone's interested in hearing the fire stories or the cop stories. Okay, well, you can dummy it down a little bit so you don't divulge too much. But get stuff off your mind. Don't keep it in. You know, find a friend at work that you can trust and you can talk to. Talk to them. Because I think it's when you suppress these thoughts and, and, and your body believes and your mind believes that it must be suppressed that you really start suffering in a bad way. And I hope no one has to go through it. You know, there are support groups out there. There's EAP, there's all that, there's professional help. But as far as routine maintenance goes, get some close friends that you trust and you can just talk to. You can get stuff off your chest. Bring it up as a normal thought. Because, I mean, yeah, they sent us to meetings and people to talk to and this and that. But, and, and by no means am I downplaying their attempt. Their attempt was fantastic. It, and by they, I mean the agency. They made a great attempt at doing it. But when I'm going to talk to a kindergarten teacher about the gory details I encountered at Pulse and what I did, not going to happen. They didn't sign up to do what I did, and I know that. So I felt, I honestly, when I went to um, UCF Restores, actually took comfort in knowing that the individual there signed up to hear this shit. Okay, well, you're going to hear it. You're going to get every bit of it I can remember. And they did. They did. And I just had a thought, and it's going to backtrack, and I hope it doesn't put us on, on you know, backwards in any way. You know, when I was in the hospital, I, I, like I said, I have an anoxic brain injury. I went without air for 10 minutes. My memory was complete crap, shit. And I was on light duty working at the courthouse, you know, trying to come back to work. 
And I left the office one day. I go, you know what? I'm just going to take, not the long way home, but I don't feel like getting on the East West. I'm going to straight down Orange Avenue. I haven't had a thought about Pulse in as long as I can remember, you know, two or three months. And I'm just head, headed down Orange Avenue. And when I got like a block north of Pulse, I literally started getting this tight feeling in my chest and breaking out in a sweat. Well, we all know how, or a lot of us know how traffic is on Orange Avenue. It's just gridlock. As I creep forward, creep forward, creep forward, I look over to my right and I see Pulse. And right then it was just like an elephant standing on my chest. And I was like, holy crap. I got an instant flood of memories, flashbacks, whatever you want to call it but like vivid memories. And I was just like, wow. But I didn't put the two together yet, you know? And the memories will never leave me, unfortunately. But um, I'd rather use them for something positive. If I could help anyone out or help people encourage to, encourage people to address things like this rather than keep tucking it away. It'll go away. Shit doesn't go away. It just keeps building up. And eventually it's going to hit that point where it bursts or overflows, however you want to put it, but it's going to be too much for you to handle. And unfortunately people find themselves in a bad way. I think all first responders should have someone to talk to and get stuff out in the open and get it over with. Try and turn those thoughts into common thoughts those suppressed thoughts into common thoughts as soon as you can. I think that's the only way we can cope with it. And I'm not one of those guys who think cops should hang out with cops only, firefighters hang out with firefighters only. No. By all means, have all the friends in the world. Have people outside of your workplace. You know, outside of your profession. But have a couple inside that you can talk to. I think it's equally important. I'd like to mention that you know, I know that there's people uh, listening to this that that are suffering right now. That um, you know, are are probably feeling broken. I mean, I know that wow. that's what I experienced. I felt like I was just fucked up beyond repair, and yeah, that was. It was like, I was so far from the person that I used to be proud of that um, it was just, you know, you go down that, that deep, dark abyss and you just can't see any, any light. And uh, it takes. It's a hollow pain that you, you tuck away like your thoughts, you know, you don't let people know you're hurting. It's a subconscious thing. And um, I think I told you the other day when you said that broken thing, it reminded me um, when I started going to UCF Restores. And you know, I was at the top of my game before I went in there. You know, I was doing a lot of good, doing a lot of things. And I just kept having this vision or, or you know, this picture in my mind of the old... Um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, the old 
animated, not cartoon, but like claymation type animation thing. And they had the Island of Misfit Toys. And that's how I saw myself. You're over here, broken, you know, of no value. And then you got all the toys and all the other stuff over here having a good time breaking. Or all the elves were over there in the movie. And um, that's truly the picture I had of myself. Well, it might be if you let it. Uh, while I think we all have a plan in our life, or God has a plan for us, however you see it, I believe um, we're in control of guiding it there. And it's on every individual to take the bull by the horns and steer out of the darkness. Get back on the path. Do your own thing. You're only broken if you want to be broken. I, now, as we all get older, I'm no longer a 20-year-old male. I get it. But I can be in better shape physically, mentally, and everything than I am now. And that's my next goal. And the only way to do it is, like I said earlier, when you make a mistake, own it. You can only fix things you own. Own the condition you're in. Own the fact that if you're not broken, it might be damaged goods. You can buff it out, you know. Um, get the help you need. You don't have to do it alone. Get help. But I, I think people would really benefit from having you know, true friends that they could talk to about the incident and get it off their chest and turn it into that everyday thought. The sooner the better. Um, one of my best friends in law enforcement was out with a surgery during Pulse. He's on EOD. And he was out. I don't think I ever really spoke much about it to him because he wasn't there. And again, I didn't want to poison him with what I had been poisoned with. The sights, the smells, the, the, the actions, you know, just the memories. I didn't want to put them in his mind. So I was like, oh, I'm dealing with it. Fine. I'm out. Don't worry about it. Eh, in retrospect, probably should have worn him out with it. So if people listen to me, learn from my mistakes and address these things as soon as you can. You know, I think that would I have addressed it, I might be in a much better, I might be better off now. I'm happy to be here. I'm good with everything that's going on in my life, but could I have spared myself a lot of misery? I think so. Yeah, you can't redo it. So I'll just do the best with what I got now. I think the biggest, most important realization that that I had was, uh, was that I wasn't broken. It's just physiologically, when when you're exposed to that much shit, yeah, your, your body is going to behave one way, and it, you know, it doesn't mean you're broken. Your your body's operating. The way it was designed you know that that whole fight or flight response and yeah and i, I think you brought up another memory you know here, here's my wonderful brain um i think we spoke of it the other day when i went through the academy back in 1990 we were told when you come home from work you take off the uniform you take off today's crap with it put it in a closet put it in a washing machine whatever when you put the uniform on the next day you're back at it Okay, so the philosophy back then was keep this shit bottled up. Don't worry about it, it'll be good. 
And they're wrong. I was wrong. I don't think that's the right way to go about it anymore. It's been really great reconnecting with you. And I really appreciate you agreeing to, to talk about all this stuff with me. No problem at all. I think it's, uh, I think it's valuable stuff that, you know, I, I'm certain that it'll help somebody out there. Um, I, I certainly, truly hope it does. I mean, like I said, I could talk about this stuff. It's not comfortable. So I hope going through it was worth it to someone. I really, and if they could stay out of the, the shit I wound up in, I only hope so. You know, take what it's worth for you, but try it out. Try talking to people and getting stuff off your chest. The sooner, the better. You're all going to hit full sooner or later. Or you may have that one-time incident you go to today. It just makes you overflow immediately. Oh, get help when that happens. In the meantime, talk to someone. Just for those listening that, that may not have... Uh had an opportunity to check out my website um, that if you go to hollenbachleadership.com there is a page dedicated to to resources um, mental health resources uh, there's there's all kinds of help out there um, and I also have uh, some things on there that kind of detail what PTSD is and you know the physiological effects and that sort of thing. So if you're curious about it, if you know somebody um, that maybe you suspect is is suffering, check it out. And you know, maybe maybe all it takes is you talking with them to maybe encourage them to get some help themselves. So uh, again, Hoppy, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate no problem. it. Man. If I can help anyone out there, put me in touch with them. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.